So I think we're moving in the right direction. I see improvement. I see the numbers coming down with COVID. I think we'll probably see little spikes here and there locally. I mean, almost like think about climate change and how it's not uniform across everywhere, right? from here, life in the time of COVID. Life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. And with every interview, we are enriched. It's truly helping. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with John Trapp, wildland firefighter and EMT and search and rescue specialist. John served overseas as an Air Force intelligence officer. He's worked as a wolf biologist across the West and is a national wildland fire manager. John is the assistant fire chief at Red Lodge Fire and Rescue and is on two national fire incident management teams as the fire behavior analyst. Over the past year, John has lived the demands of COVID, overseeing EMT services and search and rescue operations, and providing incident command services in this past summer's intense wildfire outbreaks. His reflections on how it's looked to him provide yet another vital perspective on the year we've all been living through. Today on How It Looks From Here, I get to spend some time with John Trapp. Um, John, it's good to see you. You too. And, and one of the things that I like to ask is, given the name of this series, how does it look? What do you see from where you are? Yeah, right now I'm at the, the fire station. So the view that I have is the view of all our, out the window of our apparatus bay. So I see fire engines, uh, rescue trucks, and ambulances is the view from, uh, from my office. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty uh, nice day outside as well. Yeah, so that's what you see. But you are in um, a small town, Red Lodge, in Carbon County in Montana. And uh, yeah, would you say something about that role that you have there, John? Yes, I think... Um, you know, rural communities and emergency medical services are, um, they, they vary quite a bit. Um, and they're, they're primarily staffed by volunteers. Um, and then as your community starts to get larger or have a more influx, like if it's a uh, maybe tourist-based type economy, you start to see departments become... Um, combination departments where they have a mix of paid staff and uh and and a mix of volunteers and then you transition to the bigger the bigger cities where they tend to be full paid like um you know in bozeman and and billings um so 
our department in Red Lodge is is a little unique in that we our fire department manages um, fire, wildland fire, structure fire, emergency medical services, and search and rescue, um, all from our this department here, and we have about a hundred volunteers, um, and somewhere between around, it kind of fluctuates, but maybe about 10 paid staff. Um, and so, uh, that's what I am as an assistant chief at the department. Okay. You know, this, uh, podcast is focused for now on life in the time of COVID. And here we are a year later. Um, we've been really thinking back on where we were a year ago as compared to now. One of the things that I would really be interested to hear is um, what have you seen in EMT in particular? Have you had the same calls? Have you seen that some of the usual calls you get have gone down and others have gone up? Has it stayed pretty much the same? What's it been like during COVID? Well, you know, just before this uh, getting on the call with you here, um, I was organizing uh, our ambulance to head over to the vaccination station that's happening in, in Red Lodge today. So um, I'm glad that we're moving into that phase. Yeah. You know, from the beginning, it was really just like everyone else trying to figure out best practices and and how um, how we respond in a safe way, how we keep our EMTs and paramedics uh, safe while keeping our um, the patient safe, safe as well. So we, as you know, information was changing and CDC guidance was changing or state guidance, we were constantly a little bit, you know, changing often um, in figuring out how to manage that in a, a safe way. So uh, it went from, you know, initially with COVID, everyone, the, the, the word was, well, you're going to have that a fever and you're going to have, uh, you know, a cough. And um, it was, it seemed like there was some guidance that was pretty straightforward. But as we know, as it continued on, these symptoms, some people had them, some people didn't. Some people had things like toothaches, you know, some, you know, it, it was all over the board. So we had to, wow. you know, occasionally we did have ones that had classic COVID symptoms and the dispatcher would let us know that we were responding to a call with someone with shortness of breath and a fever. And so in those cases, we could wear our full PPE or personal protective equipment, which is, um, you know, N95 mask and, and eye shield and a gown and gloves, because we're going to be then putting them in the back of the ambulance and we're in that small space with them. And Sometimes people were coughing and right. Um, but if we had no indication, like say someone just fell off of a a ladder and they had a leg injury, um, we still didn't know if they might have COVID. Uh-huh. So we our our standard practice became wearing a surgical mask as as the the baseline. So it didn't matter what the call was; we were all wearing a surgical mask. But then, if there were indications of COVID or more concerned, then we would upgrade our our gear to the, the full gear that you see in the, you know, on TV and in the hospitals. So it was it it was all along improv, essentially. 
you would get maybe some guidance from here or there, but by and large, you were having to make it up as you went along. Is that, would that be fair? The main thing was that we were constantly searching for best best practices and best guidance. And we've dealt with, as emergency medical service, have dealt with respiratory or airborne type illnesses. Right. So that was not new to us. Understanding how this was transmitted was a little bit new, right, or a lot new. But, you know, whether it was being transmitted in droplets or being, or if it was truly airborne or, so we had familiarity with things like tuberculosis and things like that. That was kind of our default. It was like thinking about an airborne illness and, and practicing that way. But I think yeah, what made it confusing is the messages from, you know, the top down were confusing from, from the president on down. Um, and then there was uh, other folks like uh, Dr. Fauci, who was providing sound science-based um, information. And so we, we really tried to rely on that, but then we were, we had to deal with many people who were not, you know, who thought that Dr. Fauci didn't know what he was doing, but all we could do is manage our protocols. And, and more than once we had, we would be in the process of caring for someone who would then, you know, halfway through our patient care and halfway through the ambulance ride would say, oh, by the way, I have COVID. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so that so that caused, because our crews were not in full PPE, they then had to quarantine. Ah, uh, right. You know, and so that then takes takes our, our EMTs and paramedics offline for a period of time where they can't respond. So we were very concerned about, okay, we need to make sure that we're we're operating at a capacity that we can respond to emergency calls that we're not going to lose our entire EMS you know division because of this so we really tried to do things and max you know to minimize exposures and i think you know over the last year we learned how to do that pretty well wow yeah well and the other thing um, that i understand is that carbon county is in the Yellowstone ecosystem. And so that means that you get a lot of tourists during the a pretty long season. I mean, usually I'm guessing, John, that you see the incidence of need for especially rescue um, going up during that period. And the understanding through the media was that more people were going outside because they couldn't do their usual indoor vacations. So... Um, and they couldn't fly necessarily and couldn't take trains. So here they came driving to Yellowstone. The, and so I've been curious about the collision of of that increase in people being in the outdoors and in the national park in particular and what, what you all had to bear. How was that? That was definitely a concern. We saw a big uptick in um, outdoor recreation and, you know, right around Red Lodge, we have the Beartooth Mountains, and as you mentioned, you know, that's the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and wilderness areas. And so one of the early on issues we had is, you know, Red Lodge Mountain was not open, uh, but people would come and skin up the mountain and ski down. And there, at, we had never seen the amount of people that were showing up in the parking lots to, to hike up the mountain and ski down. So there was definitely a concern that there was kind of, you know, unnatural um, congregations happening. And, and so 
we did do some public service announcements and saying from the fire department is that if you're recreating, please do so in a responsible way and still maintain social distancing and, um, and try to do things to limit injury because the concern was that our hospitals were going to be overrun and some of them were. Um, we, you know, came close in Red Lodge to pushing our capacity of our local hospital, but we were lucky in that we, we didn't get over, overwhelmed. I know that in Billings, the hospitals there for periods of time were at capacity. The concern was that all our medical staff would be dealing with COVID. And if we didn't have to also deal with backcountry injuries for people that were maybe weren't being so smart, right? It's like, hey, during this time, use a little extra safety, use a little extra, extra precaution so that you are our stressed out medical providers are not also having to deal with you. Yeah. <laughs> that was our message. So. Yeah. And so how did you feel that that worked? I mean, really, were there increases? Am I correct in that, that, that there were more people than usual out and about? Yeah, there was definitely high use. But luckily, there was very little instance or incidents for, for need. Like, we didn't have a big surge. We did have an uptick in search and rescue related calls, um, but it wasn't um, as much as we had worried about. So that was good. And so either people were, you know, taking care of themselves or, um, and that that's the concern is the people that are not very experienced that are like, I, I just want to get away and I need to get out in the woods. And, um, and then they become lost or injured. I think we had about a um, I want to say a 20% increase in search and rescue calls over the last year. So I also know that that this summer, another thing that you um, do is help attend to fight wildland forest fires. And um, so I would love to hear you talk about how COVID and wildfire fighting. I mean, what are some stories you can tell from how that went down? Well, that's, a, that's definitely interesting. Yes, I'm on a, I'm on a type one incident management team. Um, and so type one teams are called when the fires are, are really big. They're a national um, response, essentially. And so I'm on a Northern Rockies team. And we, uh, we were in California and Oregon on the fires there this past summer. And the incident command post is a lot of people working very closely together. You know, we have we have planning and we have logistics and, and, and finance and and operations and everyone's working together because you need to share information. And so everyone's coming into each other's space and everyone's talking to each other. So it was a little rough at first. Uh, obviously, we were all wearing masks and we were trying to find spaces that were large enough to get provide some social distancing, but um, still be able to com communicate with each other. And one of the incident command posts we utilized was a, a golf course clubhouse that had shut down. Wow. And um, we were in there and we, we were, it was a nice facility for where we were operating out of, but we were having, um, 
some trouble with just the logistics of moving through that space and getting everyone the room they needed. And then you have the those traditional issues of connectivity and and radio communications. And so it was a bit of a challenge. We did have crews that were fire crews that were exposed that had to quarantine or leave the fire. Wow. Um, and uh, but the, one of the things that changes, typically we all eat together, like all the firefighters. And so a type one fire may have a thousand firefighters on it. And so this is what we call mega fires right now. So a mega fire is, yeah, it's a fire that's kind of is much larger than in the past. And so we definitely had some of those mega fires. Uh, For sure, we're seeing an uptick in the, the number of acres burn. The, the, the fire season length is extending, the, um, uh, the intensity of the fire is increasing, and these are all related to you know, climate change and, uh, and drought and changing weather patterns. So um, there's definitely a, a big part of that is, is seen an increase in these mega fires or, or, or complex fires are, are becoming very, very common where you have multiple fires that you're managing as a team um, in different, they're all maybe within 20 miles of each other, but there's, you're going in different directions to manage all these fires that are burning simultaneously. But we all, at the end of the day, um, typically the firefighters come off the line and we all eat together. Um, There's a chow line, you know, that we go through and everyone gets a plate and a tray and, and we couldn't do that. Um, So they had to, they would, send representatives from each crew and get everyone's food and bring it back to the camp and they and all the crews ate within themselves and didn't really interact with the other firefighters and that's unusual for the way we operate as firefighters this is mary claire and how it looks from here stay with us we'll be back after this brief break One of the things that we um, talk about in full ecology is that everything is mirrored between what we think of as the different ecologies, but that if we wish to be of truest, best support to the natural world, then we need to also take care of uh, our social ecologies, the ones between us and the ones within us. And so between you all, I would imagine that there was something that was socially strengthening and an, an inoculation against the stress that occurred when everybody was eating together. And you didn't have to articulate it necessarily. It just happened. So did you see um, changes compared to prior fire seasons in um, morale? There were crews that you know, were very concerned about being able to do their job during the summers. And so that meant they were they had to stay away from other crews and it made it very isolating. I think in these, these groups, I mean, we still all were on the fire line together and um, still talking on the radios, but camp life was definitely not the same, you know, um, where you can kind of get together and talk about things and, and, and just kind of hang out and decompress a little bit. So I think it was definitely, Uh, more stressful than past years and the other thing we do is typically in the mornings we have a a a briefing for the day the operational period and that's the 
the briefing that I normally speak out when I'm doing my fire behavior analyst job. Um, I, I predict the fire behavior for the operational period. And we were having to do, we were in the basement of the golf club um, broadcasting this out to the field. So we couldn't even talk um, with the firefighters and they were all spread out listening to it on the speakers, trying to gather around maps. And so, um, and we also would have public meetings typically, we had to do them all on Zoom. And um, it, it was a learning curve figuring out because we really work hard to get information out to those who need it, whether it's the public or the other shareholders, but specifically the firefighters and safety, like how when I'm up at a map pointing and really highlighting where the danger areas are and I have the crews in front of me, they're looking at it, they're looking at me and then they can come up to me after and ask questions. When I'm projecting it over the radio and they're looking at a map, there's definitely the potential for lost uh, information. So as soon as I would give those briefings, I would head into the field and I would check in with each of the division supervisors and make sure that they understood. And then they would share that information to everyone on their divisions. Wow. Across EMT and uh, wildfire fighting, John, how many times have you quarantined? I have not had an exposure where I had to quarantine. No kidding. Yeah. That's uh, pretty amazing, huh? Yeah. So when I when I was exposed, I had full PPE on, so that doesn't warrant a, a quarantine. And the other times I was... There was like a potential scare. The people didn't have COVID, so so I did not have to quarantine. Wow. Really good luck on that. I imagine that all along the way, you've been watching things that have been happening during COVID time. And of course, it's all improvisation. And we'll continue that way as we move into whatever's next with with this, with the vaccinations and all. What is your sense of how, what what next? What's the temperature now and where are we going next from what you can tell? Yeah, so uh, when I was, I was in the Air Force, I was a, a, an intelligence analyst and we had to predict, like you're saying, and, and provide some analysis. And we had either a, a possible course of action or a probable course of action of what the, um, you know, who we were studying, what they were going to do. <laughs> so I would guess this it would be a guess at a possible course of action, right? For us is like, I, for me, you make a possible course of action when you don't have all the information and that's where we are right now. But so I think we're moving in the right direction. I see, I see improvement. I see the numbers coming down uh, with COVID. I think we'll probably see little spikes here and there locally. I mean, almost like think about climate change and how it's not uniform across everywhere, right? You have these micro climates or or sub areas where temperatures in some areas might be actually cooling and and, in some areas where they're getting much warmer. And uh, I think that's why we moved away from climate warming in general, or as the terminology that we used to use, like, well, I don't, I'm, people would say it's not getting warmer here. <laughs> I think it's so that you have these different pockets across is we're going to see that as, as different areas do better at getting their vaccines and, and practicing the, the distancing. And so I'll see, I think we'll see spikes here and there, but I think we're definitely on the right trajectory for getting back to some normality. 
Um, I was asked actually on Monday if I could deploy it in New York City to help with an incident management team there, a large scale vaccination program that's happening in New York City. So there's five incident management teams there that are managing. Are you headed there? No, I'm not going to go. I might possibly go. It's going to be ongoing for a while, but um, I had other duties I need to take care of here. But we did send a few people from our department to help with that. Wow. Have you seen increases in mental health crises for 911 calls? I've heard a lot about it. We've had, I think, about the standard amount. Um, I think we, there's a lot of reasons for mental health crisis right now Yeah. beyond COVID and the quarantining and the isolation. I think we've got a lot of things in our society that are contributing to um, psychological emergencies. And um, I think we're going to see a, an increase in that in general because uh We've got some healing to do and some different way of like approaching things, I think, in our society in general. So, um, Right. In the big polarization, mm -hmm. you mean, referring to the polarization between. And we can't even articulate, really. Right. Um, the, the names are so cliched, but we know it's there. Mm -hmm. And it feels really frightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Given all the things that we have just talked about in this this brief time, what would be your advice for listeners from where you sit and how the world looks to you? What is your wisdom? What would you say? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have a lot of wisdom to add on that, but what I do tell my, my daughters is that most of the negative interactions that they have with people, it, it's not about them. It's not about um, my daughters. It's about something that's going on in the other people. And I think that's a lesson for all of us is, is when someone treats us poorly, we, we tend to, um, it's like, oh, well, it's, a, it's about us. Maybe I did something wrong or what, how can I fix this? And I think when people behave poorly, it's just something that they're dealing with, you know, and, um, and it's not our job to fix it. Um, but it is our job to be aware of it and be like, all right, well, it looks like they're struggling with something and, um, and not take it personally. And so because you take it personally, you stay awake, you know, thinking about it or losing sleep and, and um, you know, just, just keep moving forward, be a good person and, and uh, take care of yourself and realize that it's, you know, everything that happens isn't about you. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. As children, <laughs> yeah, children tend to think that everything is, you know, as as we all did, right? It, with the world centered around us. So I think early on, the sooner they realize the world doesn't center around them, I think the better. <laughs> well, and, and it strikes me that that's part of our the challenge that you were mentioning earlier, is that a lot of adults haven't gotten past that. That's one of the ways that we can build our humility a little bit is to realize how quickly we all fall into that what about me story so mm -hmm. well john thank you so much for what you're doing what's next for you today oh that's a good uh question i think what we're um we're starting to gear up for the wild and fire season and so um as you know it's 
the season starting earlier and earlier and going longer and longer. So we do hire a seasonal um, initial attack crew that operates out of Red Lodge, but it also, the our, our firefighters that we hire um, deploy nationally. So we're in the process of starting to gather applications and for firefighters and uh, to get ready for our fire season. Um, so that's mostly what I'm working on. I'll probably check over at the vaccination clinic and see how that's going. And um, they were planning on doing um, over 500 there today. And wow. Yeah, in Red Lodge. So, so I'll go check on them and just keep checking on the town and see how we're doing. <laughs> Wow, great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all that you and your colleagues do to help keep us safe and healthy. Do the same for yourself. Take good care. Yeah, thanks for having me. John contacted me after our interview to make a correction. As he looked back at the data, he saw the number of search and rescue incidents last summer actually increased 50%. Watch for John Trapp's work going forward. You can find his insights on other podcasts and recorded programs by searching John Trapp Wolves. During our conversation today, we referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, out April 20th from Heyday Books. Information on that release is in our episode notes as well as links for the Full Ecology virtual launch event set for Earth Day, April 22nd, 2021, and hosted by death penalty abolition advocate, Sister Helen Prejean. And a quick pitch, if you're liking what you're hearing here, make sure to subscribe and let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family, share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another point of view. Keep listening and be in touch. How it looks from here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How it looks from here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe and Doug LaVisca. Music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. You can find us on social media at www.fullecology.com. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners, like you.